Amen. Howard, thank you for the wonderful job you do each Sunday. Good morning. I learned something new standing in the lobby. Mark and uh, who else back there? Stacy and Danny and everybody have lessons. Um, I'm not sure that it's uh, that readable, but you're welcome to get one. If you don't, just raise your hand. Don't have one, raise your hand. They'll bring you one. Um, I met June standing in the lobby out there today who was wearing her name tag from Northwood Presbyterian Church and uh, asked her just how many of our people she was shuttling out the door. And she said, no, she's shuttling them in. And she comes over here from church uh, for Sunday school, uh, which is a nice encouragement to us. And uh, uh, so anybody uh, who comes in here for this class, um, please don't leave till it's over today. Uh, Today is one that, that may seem a bit more dry to those of you who have the more scholastic bent. It may be uh, a, a little bit more interesting. Um, to those of you who uh, are in the class, though, I think this is very important that we look at. I've entitled the lesson, The Synoptic Problem. And uh, we're going to talk about that in some detail here this morning, and I'll try and do the best job I can teaching through it. If you've got questions, I'm not going to be very helpful afterwards. Uh, for those of you who like to uh, uh, do other boring things on Sunday afternoon besides take a nap, um, uh, at 1 o'clock I'm scheduled to be on KPRC, 9.50 a.m. Uh, it's a talk radio call-in show. I've given Becky a load of questions to call in with. <laughs> I have suggested she call in and say, boy, you make really good points I had never thought of. Uh, I find your insight and eloquence overwhelming. And honey, what time will you be home for lunch? Um, uh, but uh, uh, you might, uh, uh, if you're just driving around this afternoon, tune in to 9.50 and say, uh, gee, he talks about something other than biblical literacy. Um, uh, I'm, I'm on there as a lawyer today uh, who is, I'm head of the Christian Trial Lawyers Association here in the United States. And so I'll be on there talking about that and talking about some letters that have just gone out calling me, let's see, uh, a dangerous pathological liar, congenital cheater, cold and cunning like a rattlesnake waiting in the bush ready to strike as often as it takes to bring down the prey. As ruthless as I am selfish, as sleazy as I am greedy, and a few other things. And the, the nice part about it is, is the outfit that sent this out, which I won't name here in class because it's irrelevant, but I'm a member of them, so I paid my dues to send this out. I will take her to task on the radio. Um, <clears throat> 1 o'clock, 9.50. Now, let's get to the synoptic problem. The synoptic problem. This is a fun class. I've got it kind of divided up into two parts. I'm not quite sure how next week will go because I will not be here. Uh, Becky and I will be out of town, but I have Charles Mickey coming in to teach. Uh, it's a, a fun opportunity uh, for y'all to hear Charles. Charles is going to be in town, and Lewis has graciously said, hey, I'd love to hear Charles. And uh, so I've put Charles up to bat. Um, Charles is an old, old friend of mine and an old friend of many of yours. Like me, Charles came out of the Church of Christ tradition. 
and in fact used to preach at the Bamel Road Church of Christ down the street uh, many, many years ago, gave me an opportunity to fill in for him uh, preaching at that church um, uh, right after Mary Lou Retton had just won her gold medals and she went to church out there. And so it was kind of a um, uh, novel experience for me. Uh, Charles is no longer in the Church of Christ. He is, uh, 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 will have a wonderful opportunity to speak and to teach next week. And so uh, I look forward to you being here and enjoying him. Uh, he will carry through with part two. Part one of the synoptic problem is where we are this morning. <clears throat> I want to start asking the question, what are the synoptic Gospels? Now, you don't have to answer that, but I'd just like you to raise your hand if you feel like you know what the synoptic Gospels are. Okay, this gives me a feel for how much people already know as we go into this. The word synoptics, there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Three of those four are called synoptic Gospels. Okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels, and John is a Gospel by itself. Why do we even have this word synoptic? Why do we call those three Gospels something different? It's because as we study the Bible, it's very useful to point out some peculiarities that apply to Matthew, Mark, and Luke that don't really apply to John. John's kind of over here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are three to themselves. We get the word synoptic from synoptikos, which is a Greek word. It's actually two Greek words put together. Um, soon means together. And anybody guess what optikos, optic, see? It means to see together. And the reason that these Gospels are called synoptic Gospels is because these synoptics have certain things in common. The Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels, tell the story of Jesus in much the same way. They have many of the same stories. They use very similar language many times. Many times they use precise same phrases. And then also, they, they uh, 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 tend to give the same general order of things. John's Gospel is not a synoptic because John's Gospel approaches things very differently. John tells, by and large, different stories. John tells, by and large, different narratives. John tells, by and large, uh, 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 uses different phrases and different terminology. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all seem to use much the same. For example... They tell about John the Baptist. They tell about Jesus' baptism. When Damon mentioned it this morning in his sermon, Damon quoted from Mark. In Mark, the baptism of Jesus is set out and in, and in chapter 1, I believe. And, and what God says is the dove descends. Damon quoted, You are my son in whom I am well pleased. Right? Matthew is there. Matthew tells the same story. But in Matthew, the voice says, not you are my son. It says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So there's that little bit of change. But the commonality is there. They both have the story. They both have the dove. They both have the dove descending. They both have the voice. The temptations are given in each of the synoptics. But they're given a bit differently again. Each of the synoptics have the temptations, but in Matthew, the temptations are given. One, two, three. In Mark, it merely says Jesus was taken out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
In Luke, the temptations are given again, one, two, three, but in a different order than they are in Matthew. Okay? Um, so, these things are things that are in common. I don't know why I put it in a second column. I guess to compare what's in Matthew with what's in Mark. Why do we term this, and why do theologians call this a synoptic problem? What exactly is the problem that we want to address this morning? Well, the problem is, while there are common events, while there is a, by and large, common arrangement, and while there are common phrases in the important areas, but also in, in innocuous, unimportant, just small areas, the language, I mean, down to the letter, are the exact same words chosen oftentimes. While there are common events, there are also differences. And that's the synoptic problem. The synoptic problem is, how do we understand these Gospels and the differences? Um, um, you know, what really happened in history? What really was said? When did it happen? Where did it happen? If we're to read the Bible and understand these things to be literally true, how do we integrate and mesh together these three synoptics that have different accounts? You see the problem? Does that make sense? So what I want to do this morning is I want to, to work through an approach to this, but I want to try and do it with something very real, some real, uh, a real passage. And I've chosen the resurrection. So if we look at Matthew chapter 28, um, that doesn't quite fit on there, does it? Okay, that's close enough. Y'all can uh, help me make sense out of it. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, okay, remember her, she's in yellow for a reason, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Philip, I think it's with the PowerPoint. I don't think it's the projector. Went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And going to the tomb, the angel rolled back the stone and sat on it. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. And announces that he has risen to go tell the apostles. Okay? Now you follow that? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. An angel, singular, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And the angel says to the women, don't be afraid. You're looking for Jesus. He's risen. All right? Let's read the same account in the Gospel of Mark. Out of Mark chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene doesn't say the other Mary. says Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. Now here we have the same Mary Magdalene that we saw in Matthew's account. We have Mary the mother of James. 
whereas Matthew had just said, the other Mary. But we've added Salome. Mark does not recount the angel moving the big rock and then sitting on the rock. Rather, as Mark recounts the story, the women enter the tomb and they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side inside the tomb. Okay? Now let's throw in the third synoptic. Let's look at Luke. Luke 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women, and we know by reading down to verse 10, I've had to pull verse 10 up here to put it in. The women are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, so this is inside the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, as opposed to Mark, which had one man sitting. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. I was in uh, uh, New Orleans Friday night, Thursday night. <clears throat> and I was at a function. And a fella from uh, Amarillo came up to me to introduce me to his wife. And uh, uh, he said, This is the... the lawyer I was telling you about who does the Christian junk. <laughs> I smiled and said, that would be me. I'm the lawyer that does the Christian junk. Um, uh, uh, one of many, I might add. Moriarty does the Christian junk, too. Um, but uh, uh, he said uh, to me, he said, what did you think of the passion? And I said to him, well, what did you think of the passion? He said, I was enchanted with it. I was moved. I was touched. I went home and for the first time in my memory read my Bible. I said, tell me what you read. He said, I had to read the gospel accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection. Then he looked at me and he said, did you know there are some differences in there? <laughs> and I said, yeah, come to class Sunday morning. We're looking. as I'd already written the lesson. So I said, come to class. We're talking about uh, some. At least we're zooming in on the resurrection. He said, well, I can't come in, but uh, can I get a copy? And I said, sure. Um, you read these accounts. You be intellectually honest. And you say, you start scratching your head and say, here's some issues here. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the synoptic problem. So, let's talk about it. First thing we need to do is we need to see what these stories have in common. Because there are certain facts there can be no dispute about. Number one. There's no dispute among any version you read or among any gospel you read that Mary Magdalene and another Mary went to see Jesus and to take spices. That is a common thread throughout. It's a common thread throughout that this happened on the first day of the week. It is a common thread throughout that the stone was rolled away. It is a common thread throughout that Jesus was gone and not because of body snatchers. It's a common thread throughout that uh, uh, as God's messenger declares this truth, Jesus is risen. Okay. 
That's the gospel message. Make no mistake about it as we look at the synoptic problem. We're not looking at a situation where some may question the resurrection. Where some may give a different account of whether or not Jesus was in fact uh, 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 raised up from the dead. That's not at issue here. What we have to look at in the synoptic problem are these other little different details and how they mesh together. So, for example, we need to try and understand what happened with this angel. Matthew's got one angel sitting outside the tomb. Mark's got one angel sitting inside the tomb, it seems, on the right. And then Luke has two men that suddenly appear inside standing. We need to look at the differences in the people. Who was there? We've got in Matthew, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. We've got in Mark, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. And then we've got in Luke, Mary Magdalene. Well, first Luke says the women. But if we go down to verse 10, we've got Mary Magdalene, Joanna, all of a sudden. Mary, the mother of James, and the others. Now, the lawyer in me wants to put Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the stand. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help you, God. And write these down on the chalkboard and try to ferret out the truth. Who was there? Who was the angel? How many were there? Where were they? And what did they say? Well, I don't have that uh, privilege. But I will tell you as a lawyer who does this for a living, and Moriarty would tell you the same thing because he tries lawsuits also. One of the things we do when we put witnesses on the stand, witnesses to an accident, witnesses to a contract, witnesses to anything, one of the things you do before you start cross-examining that witness to try and make them either credible or incredible liars or mistaken. You don't do that as a lawyer cross-examining until you know the answers to the questions that you're asking. Okay? You've got to know. Before I put a witness on the stand, I've got to figure out, I call it wiggle room. I don't want to leave any wiggle room. If I've got some fellow who I don't think's being honest and truthful and I think's telling a lie, I've got to, to pin down the wiggle room and make it where he's got no room to crawfish or dance or wiggle and then show he's a liar. Um, I should give you an example. I can't think of one. <laughs> I just have done this for 20 years. Um, uh, I can't think of one that's suitable, I should say. Um, um, here's an example. This is not my example. This comes from Irving Younger, but it's a good one. There is a, 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 a lawsuit that's brought out. The theory of the lawsuit is these two guys were in a fight. One man, in fighting with the second man, bit the guy's nose off. Okay. And so the second man brings a lawsuit against the first man for biting off his nose. No, it wasn't Mike Tyson. He bites ears. <laughs> for biting off his nose. Okay. There's a, quote, eyewitness on the stand. And the defense lawyer is hammering the eyewitness. And the defense lawyer says, This accident happened in a field, didn't it? Witness, yes. And you were at the edge of the field and the forest, weren't you? 
Yes. And the fight was in the middle of the field, wasn't it? Yes. And at the time of the fight, you had your back to the men because you were looking at a bird in the tree, didn't you? man said, yes. So in fact, sir, there is no way you saw my client bite that man's nose off. Isn't that the truth? The man said, yes. But there was still some wiggle room there. Do you all know where the wiggle room was? The follow-up question shows it. Then how do you know my client did it? Answer. I heard the loudest scream I've ever heard in my life. I turned around and saw your client spit the nose out of his mouth. You don't want to leave wiggle room as a lawyer. That's where you lose cases. You've got to make sure if you're going to challenge someone's integrity that you have eliminated any wiggle room. So before I will sit down with Matthew, Mark, and Luke and challenge their integrity and put them on the stand, I want to see what kind of wiggle room there is. I want to see, before I challenge their integrity, I want to be fair and understand what they're saying. And that's what I'd like you to do with me this morning. Let's look at this as, as a lawyer. If the synoptic problem is what happened and when did it happen and where did it happen and what was truly said, then we must start out by asking ourselves, what is our view of Scripture and its accuracy? There's an easy cop-out for some people. An easy cop-out for some people is just say, well, that's wrong. Or that's wrong. Or that's wrong. Or they're all wrong. Um, that's not my view of Scripture. Um, um, I want to ask that question, what is our view of Scripture and its accuracy? And then the second question I want to ask is, how do these Gospels interrelate? If I give you my Lanier's thoughts on Scripture, then the next follow-up question is, okay, then Lanier, how do these interrelate? How do you deal with this problem? Let's look first at the view of Scripture. I've kind of put a continuum up here. On the far left, um, there are those who believe that Scripture what we call Scripture, is merely an accumulation of ideas with errors and bias. Let's see if I can make that a little bit. Yes. There is an accumulation of ideas. The Bible is just a bunch of different things that different people have written. It's got bias in it. It's got errors in it. It's just, uh, you know, what do you expect when you get all these people writing? On the far right, we've got people who think, God came down and translated the King James Version of the Bible. Um, I went to a school one time, I've told many of you, where in the Bible department, the professors were only allowed to teach out of the King James, the old King James, and out of the old American Standard, which reads like the old King James. Because um, in the view of some, those were the inspired translations. So if that's the far left, and that's the far right, where do we fill it in? Well, one way to fill it in, a lot of modern theologians for the last 100 years, and this really started, in my opinion, with Karl Barth, um, but a lot of modern theologians and scholars have what I call the wink-wink perspective of Scripture. This is what it says. It says, look, let's don't ask if it's authoritative. Let's don't ask if it's right. Heavens, let's don't ask if it's historically accurate. It doesn't matter. 
Let's just accept that it's true. Wink, wink. And just teach it like it's true. Wink, wink. It's irrelevant whether it's true or not. There are a lot of people who hold to that view of Scripture. There are a lot of people who hold to another view. And that is, Scripture is true and accurate where it talks about theology and salvation. But it's not accurate where it talks about history or science or other things. So let's read it and understand it for what it says about theology or salvation or how we're right with God. But let's don't probe the rest of this stuff because it's just going to be wrong. Now, those are different views of Scripture. If you go and you buy a commentary, the person who, trans who does your commentary, the author, may hold one of these views of Scripture. If you go and you buy a book, a religious book, you need to know where your author is coming from because your view of Scripture changes how you're going to perceive this. Let me add our view of Scripture. Our view of Scripture is what I consider an inerrancy viewpoint but it's one where I define the inerrancy, uh, and this isn't original with me, but it's the one I, I believe. Inerrancy, that Scripture is perfect and without error in what it claims to be and in what it sets forward for itself. So where Scripture claims to be touching history and giving a historical account, it's accurate. Part of my belief system is that the God who created us did not make us and then choose to be silent. The God who created us desires to communicate with us. And Scripture is God's communication to us. So if that is the perspective that I use to approach Scripture with, then let's ask the second question, which is, okay, Lanier, how do the Gospels relate to each other? Please understand, there are probably 50 different perspectives that you could find on the synoptic problem. I've kind of reduced them down into four that are significant. These are significant either because a lot of people hold them or a lot of people ride on them or historically they've been uh, uh, out there. What are the four different approaches? And then I'll tell you which one uh, I would like to, us to consider as maybe the proper approach. The first approach is an oral tradition. The reason you have different accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke the reason you have the differences in terminology or the differences in the number of angels or the differences in where the angels are is because the gospel writers were merely recounting oral traditions. There were lots of oral traditions. Nobody was the authorized biographer of Jesus walking around taking notes. They didn't divide up apostolic uh, uh, um, offices beyond Judas getting to be the treasurer. They did not have a secretary to take notes. And so oral tradition. Don't you know, historically, Mary Magdalene told people about the resurrected Jesus and what happened at the tomb. She had to have. If you had been there, if you had been a devoted follower of Jesus Christ and you had gone there on Easter morning and you had seen the tomb empty and you had had a conversation with an angel or a young man dressed in bright clothes, which everybody understands to have been an angel, wouldn't you tell someone about it for the rest of your days? Of course you would. So Mary Magdalene told Mary, the other Mary, Mary, the mother of James, Salome, Joanna. 
anybody who was there would have told. It would have been the pivotal event in their life to be present at the tomb on Easter morning, expecting to see a slain Jesus and finding instead a risen Messiah. So the theory behind an oral tradition is you get different versions from different people. Different oral versions get written up differently. The positive to this is it would explain why there are differences. The negative to this is, number one, you've got to assume no one writing was an eyewitness or had close contact with the eyewitnesses. You've got to almost assume that Matthew didn't write Matthew because Matthew was an apostle and he would have had an independent account. He would not have been going upon oral tradition. He would have actually been there when the women came and told him and not just heard through folklore or through the vine. You've almost got to see that oral tradition is inconsistent, in my opinion, with inerrancy. Inerrancy says that this is accurate. Oral tradition says, well, it's an accurate oral tradition. And that doesn't, I don't like that. That doesn't sit well with me. Um, I also think this is inaccurate just from a strictly scholastic perspective in this sense. There are some phrases in Matthew that are absolutely identical down to the letter to the same phrase in Mark. And someone was looking at someone's paper when they wrote it. Okay? I mean, it's one thing to tell the same story, but it's another thing in irrelevant ways like he went and stood upon the mountain when you could say that in 50,000 different ways in the Greek that they do it the exact same way with the exact same verb tense, with the exact same letters, with the exact same accent mark. If it were just the story of the three pigs and the, and the wolf, and you read in each, little pig, little pig, let me in, not by the hair of my chinny, chin, chin, I can see that those from an oral tradition would be the same in each, because everybody tells that story the same way. It wouldn't surprise me for Lewis to tell that story the same way I do, at least on those. But if Lewis and I were to both tell the story of the three little pigs, and we happened to have put in there... The red brick house rose majestically while the stick house lie in the ashes from the wolf's tepid breath that stunk from the last pigs he'd eaten. If Lewis has that same choice of words exactly the same as mine, you just sort of feel like there was some looking going on. So I don't think the oral tradition takes care of the exact phraseology problem. A second approach is what's called the successive writer's approach. The idea behind this is someone wrote theirs first. And then after that person wrote theirs, the next person wrote their gospel. And the person who wrote the second gospel probably had a chance to look at the first gospel in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And decided what they wanted to add or what they wanted to take away or what they wanted to, you know, what they didn't need to rehash, what, what's useful to add because this detail was missing or this nuance wasn't there. That's fine. I'll just use those phrases. I'll use those words. And so uh, uh, the successive writers um, uh, approach, uh, this means that there was some order in which this stuff was written and that one writer might have had access to the materials of the other gospel writer. 
The pluses on this is it's very consistent with an inerrancy view. It means when we read a distinction in the Gospels, we need to understand why the distinction is there instead of writing it off as, as one of them is fictional. So when Matthew writes that there's an angel sitting on the tomb stone that's been rolled away, and then Mark comes in and Mark writes that there's an angel inside the tomb talking, we need to understand why there is that distinction. What I've asked Charles to do, if he's comfortable doing it next Sunday, is to take some points in Mark that are written a little differently than Matthew and show how the difference accentuates and helps us get a fuller grasp of what happened. Okay? Another plus is it explains some of the differences because now the differences can be seen as supplements, either to make the story more complete from Mark's angle or Luke's angle, or as a supplement to try and add some additional information because Mark's trying to make a different point than Matthew was trying to make. Remember, Matthew wrote his gospel to Jewish believers to help them understand and stay convicted that Jesus was Messiah. Mark's not writing his for the same point. Matthew writes his gospel very much in an orderly fashion. Here's what happened. Bam, 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 bam. Mark doesn't write his in an orderly fashion. Mark's is more like a flower arrangement instead of a logical outline. It's not an A, B, C, D. It's, I think a rose would look pretty here, and let's put some greenery over here, and let's put a daisy over there. He's more concerned with what the bouquet looks like as opposed to this logical order. Okay? So, minuses to the successive writer. It's not as popular today as it used to be, so if you're into what the latest uh, popularity swing is on the theological circuit, uh, uh, this one, it's making a bit of a comeback. But uh, uh, this was a lot more popular uh, in days gone by than it is today. Um, there are still some phraseology issues, but to me those kind of go away because I can see one writer following what another writer said. Now, Let's look at this in relation to the Gospels themselves. Oops, I didn't give you the last two, three, or last two. This one we're going to do quickly, but this is the most popular one out there today. Okay? This is the unknown primitive Gospel, or some variation of it. The idea is that most, um, I won't say secular, but, but most scholars today believe that Mark was the first written gospel and that Matthew and Luke took Mark and took this other unknown gospel that we don't have today that, that we just call Q. Q stands for the German word Quelle, which means source. And so the idea is there's this unknown document out there and Matthew used the unknown document in Mark and kind of put together a patchwork from them. And so did Luke. And that would explain the phraseology and that would explain why Matthew's got some stories Mark doesn't have. He, Matthew got them from Luke. I mean, from Q. Luke, same thing. Um, the plus is, anytime you've got some mysterious document that no one's ever seen, you've got like this ready-made get-out-of-jail-free card for any problems you have. You know? Uh, that answer is in that unknown document none of us can see. Well, what about this problem? That problem's answered in the unknown document none of us can see. It's just uh, awfully handy convenience for the gaps 
to me. Um, minus. We got 7,000 transcripts of the New Testament. Ancient transcripts. Partial or whole. And somehow, somewhere, this key critical transcript that was used by Matthew and Luke is gone. And we don't even have a whisper of it anywhere. That's bothered me since I was taught this 25 years ago in school. I wasn't taught this is the correct approach, but I was reading the books. And this is what the books, many of the books teach. And I'm just sitting there saying, okay, so like this thing was so great and so incredible that Matthew and Luke use it as their source text along with Mark. And we've got over 7,000 fragments or, or whole transcripts of the New Testament. We don't even have one of these? That's just awfully convenient to me. Um, fourth one is, there were little, I call this the track theory, multiple gospelettes. There were all these little gospelettes around. And people would just go out to the track shelf and pull about four or five of them and put them together in their own gospel. Um, only one scholar of notes ever really held that perspective. We're not going to waste time on it. Um, uh, you know, then the biggest minus is you don't just have one missing. Now you've got a bunch of these things missing. Um, I believe the successive writers with some modification makes the most sense to me. And so I would like with my approach as I understand it, I say my approach, with the approach that I understand and that I ascribe to, I would like to look again at these stories and urge you to consider this as a, a plausible answer to the synoptic problem. Please understand, this is a problem that has been around for 2,000 years, and it's not one where Mark Lanier, regardless of what gray matter he has, can stand up here and answer every question you have and resolve any doubts in anybody's minds. This is one where it is a perplexing problem, and what I offer you is, is what makes the most sense to me. Okay? Y'all understand? Okay, first of all, if we're going to see it as a successive writers, the first thing we've got to do is decide which gospel was written first. I'm a firm believer that Matthew was written first. The, 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 the reason most theologians today believe that Mark was written first is because Mark is short and Matthew and Luke are large. And the theory is that you write something short first and then when more people come, they kind of flesh it out and make it bigger. So Mark was written, Mark was short, Mark was succinct. Mark also has some pretty good uh, active terms in it and vibrancy. So Mark reads like something that's real and was original. And then Matthew comes along, whoever Matthew was, um, somebody comes along and takes Mark and says, well, let's add some stuff to it. Man, he says there were the temptations. Let's fill them in. Let's say what they were. And so the theory is Mark was written first because it's short and then Matthew later. Now, that theory's only been around for about 150 years. If you look at the first 1,800 years of history of Christianity, everyone, by and large, believed that Matthew was written first. In fact, the reason the books are in the order they're in, in our Bible, is because they are, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, are put in the order in which they were thought to have been written uh, way back through the ages. So, why are the Gospels in that order? Traditionally, that's the order of authorship. This stuff changed in the 19th century. Who wrote Matthew? See, I think Matthew wrote it. 
this is relevant on order, so don't, don't lose me here. We're, we've got 10 minutes. We'll wrap this up. Um, Papias is, is the first person we have who talks about Matthew. Papias lived between 60 A.D. and 130. All right? The Apostle John doesn't die till the 90s. So Papias was 35, 36 years old before the Apostle John even died. This is a very, very early reference. Papias was probably born at a time where Matthew was still alive. So a very early reference. Papias, Irenaeus in, uh, Irenaeus, I'm sorry, in uh, 185, writes about Papias and says, he's an ancient man. He was an ancient man. It means he was an old timer. He was an old guy. This is to someone in 185. They think he was old. He was an old guy who was a hearer of John. This is a guy who heard the Apostle John and a companion of Polycarp who was a student of the Apostle John. So we've got a pretty early authority here with this fella. And this isn't three or four hundred years later. This is a first generation. Um, and Papias says, Matthew wrote the oracles in the Hebrew language and everyone interpreted them as he was able. Now, if I ever had any thought that was novel to contribute to this discussion, here is where it comes in. And I don't think that people think of new things very well, so this has probably been written up by someone and I've read it and it's in the subconscious part of my mind and I just think I came up with this. But, having said that, so many New Testament scholars are not Old Testament scholars. The, 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 the world of theology right now is almost like the world of medicine or lawyering. You've got specialists. You know, I know how to try a lawsuit, but if you want me to write your will, <laughs> go to Mike Riddle. He writes wills. I don't know how to write a will. Okay? I, if you want me to form a corporation, no way. I wouldn't have a clue what to do. I know how to do this little niche. Okay? I've got a, I've got a, a heart surgeon friend of mine who I asked one time to do a hernia repair. And he said he didn't know how. And he was afraid he'd mess it up. And I said, but can't y'all like do those in your... He says, not me, man. If it's not the heart, I don't even know where it is. All right. All right. In this not much different in theological circles. So you've got all of these scholars writing on this New Testament canon issue who really are not Old Testament scholars. They haven't really taken much Hebrew. They haven't studied much Hebrew. They don't spend much time in the Hebrew. So most people look at this statement by Papias and either write it off or say it's talking about something other than the Gospel of Matthew because as you read the Gospel of Matthew fairly, it doesn't read like it's been translated out of the Hebrew into Greek. It looks like it was written in the Greek. Okay? So I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, well, why isn't anybody writing the obvious? What's the obvious, you say? The obvious is this. Christianity started out as a Jewish um, as a portion of the Jewish faith. Actually, the confirmation, the culmination of the Jewish faith. And then, the Jewish faith itself rebelled against Rome. And in 70 AD, Rome wipes out, as best as they can, Judaism, especially in Jerusalem and Palestine. That's when Masada takes place and, and they're wiped out. That's when the temple is raised and not one rock stands on top of another. That's when all of the Jewish holy writings were destroyed. Now, you're Matthew. 
It's pre-70 A.D. and you've written your gospel or you've written the sayings of Jesus and you've written them in Hebrew because you're writing to the Jewish people to persuade them Jesus is Messiah. These events take place and all the Hebrew everywhere is being destroyed and burned and, and, and is wiped out for history's sake. What do you do? Please understand Matthew as a tax collector can write in Hebrew or Greek. I mean, he had to have an ability to speak in the currency of the day. If I'm Matthew, I rewrite my gospel and I write it this time in Greek. And if Mark's got a gospel that he's put out since I wrote the first time, I wouldn't mind taking Mark and looking at the way he used some of the phrases and words. It's pretty easy to do. But I still see Matthew as the first written gospel. And I see Matthew as writing it as an eyewitness. And that's consistent with what church history is taught. Um, Ignatius and Polycarp, both before 110 A.D., knew the book of Matthew. Before 110 A.D., they're putting in letters. Be in all things wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. That's in the epistle to Polycarp. Matthew 10.16, be shrewd as snakes or serpents as innocent as doves. It's the only place in the Bible it's talked about. It's very clear that by 110 A.D., these guys had Matthew and had it in front of them. Now, who wrote Mark? Mark. Papias, the same guy, says, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately, though not in order, whatever he remembered of the things said or done by Christ. So Mark committed no error while he wrote. Mark wrote down Peter's account as Peter was teaching. So in Matthew, we have one apostle. In Mark, we have the apostle Peter. And if the order, um, uh, you know, Origen, who's born in 185, says, concerning the four Gospels, which alone are uncontroverted in the church of God under heaven, I've learned by tradition. And the tradition's just not that old at this point. That's like the tradition of what happened for us. Was it World War I and World War II or vice versa? Now, that's about how far back we're looking. Um, uncontroverted in the church of God. I have learned by tradition the gospel according to Matthew, who was at one time a publican and afterwards an apostle, was written first. He composed it in the Hebrew tongue and published it for the converts from Judaism. The second written was that according to Mark, who wrote it according to the instruction of Peter, who in his general epistle acknowledged Mark as a son, saying the church is in Babylon, da-da-da-da-da. Third was that according to Luke, the gospel committed by Paul. Uh, and last of all, that according to John. So, um, I'm going to skip this, but the epistle of Barnabas, 130 A.D., calls Matthew Holy Scripture and quotes it. Um, the Muratorian Canon in 170 does the same thing. Let's take the last four minutes and let's look at the resurrection problem in light of this. First, we've gone through it, but let's go through it together. After the Sabbath and at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Is that true or false? That's true. There's nothing wrong with that. There was a violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone. Angel rolled back the stone. Let's just accept it as true. Let's accept as true that the angel sat on it and scared the living snot out of the guards. That's the point Matthew's making. The Matthew's making the point that the angel moves the stone and then just sits there. 
And the guard's reaction is to play possum, to faint, to act dead. They just don't want to stand there and talk to the angel. That's the account Matthew gives. Matthew's giving this account to let people know this was Jesus' Messiah. It is after this the angel says to the women, because the women aren't there when the stones rolled away. So afterward, the angel says to the women, don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus. Now look at Mark. When the Sabbath was over, true. Mary Magdalene, that's consistent. Mary, the mother of James. Oh, he's telling us which the other Mary was. That's helpful. And Salome. So Salome was there too. So when Salome's walking around telling Peter and other people, hey, here's what happened. Mark's letting everybody know Salome was also there. Matthew never said only Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. It's just those are the two Matthew talked about. Mark's supplementing with additional material and telling us Salome bought spices too. And very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they're on their way. They're wondering who's going to roll the stone away. Well, Matthew doesn't say that, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Matthew's just not writing about it. This is Mark supplementing, giving us some additional material. When they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. It had already happened. How Matthew got his account of the angel sitting there, uh, angel rolled back the stone and sat on it, that's in one sentence for Matthew. He rolls it back and he sits on it and the guards are terrified. That happened before the women got there. Matthew must have gotten that from one of the guards. We don't know. But it's not inconsistent. By the time the women get there, the angel's not sitting on the tomb playing with the guards and freaking them out. They enter the tomb and then they see a young man sitting on the right side when they go in the tomb. So the angel's in the tomb at this point. And the angel says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus. He's crucified. He's risen. There's not really an inconsistent... As a lawyer, I don't want to cross-examine because I see what I would call wiggle room. But in other words, I don't see the inconsistency when you really press it and you look at it as a supplement. Look at the third version of Luke. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women, and we find out later it's Mary Magdalene, Joanna. Oh, is that inconsistent? No. Neither Matthew nor Mark have said these are the only ones. Joanna... Mary, the mother of James, and the others. Salome, we know at least, was one of them. They go down there. They take the spices they prepared. They went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away. Consistent. When they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Consistent. While they were wandering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Okay? Now look at Mark. They see a young man dressed in white they were alarmed, and that young man spoke to them. Doesn't mean there weren't two people there. It means that they saw one who spoke to them, and that's the way Mark's chosen to tell us the story. But there are two men in clothes that gleam like lightning, and their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? Which one of the two said it? We don't know. Are we supposed to read that and think that they said it in harmony and unison? No. That's not fair. See, what the Scripture is doing is the Scripture is giving us, we, we get all sides of the elephant. 
You've heard the story about the blind people who come up to the elephant and are asked to touch it and to describe it. One of them says, ooh, it's long and it's, it moves around like this and sounds like it's breathing at the end. The other one says, no, 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 man, it's real tall and it's real hard to get your arms around. It's kind of wrinkly like a knee. The third one says, no, man, it's like a wall. You know, it's just this huge thing. Well, they're all describing the same elephant. They've just got a different point of view that they're looking at. So that's what we have here, I believe, with the Gospels. I don't think we have inconsistencies. I think we have nuances that offer us more flavor, more insight, uh, more to chew on. Points for home. Number one, from A to Z, it doesn't matter. Christ is risen. And of that, we have confidence. Number two, the resurrection accounts are reliable. We can read them. We can make movies about them. They're reliable. Number three, study the Bible. Get it out, read it, and study it. Number four, read it carefully when you do. And number five, don't worry as you read it. Don't be afraid to look at it and to use your brain. Don't be afraid to seek this stuff out because there are very good answers to some very good questions that make it a thrilling ride to become biblically literate. Pray with me, please. Yes. Class leaders need to meet with Howard down front just very briefly, he said, right after class. If you could come down, and I'm fleeing out this way, so if you have questions, um, email. Lord, thank you so much for an opportunity to study your word. Thank you that we've got such wonderful um, accounts of a resurrection that has changed the world, that certainly changed each one of our lives. And we appreciate uh, an opportunity to study your word. We pray that we will use our minds to your glory. That you will strengthen our faith and our confidence in the resurrected Jesus Christ. That we will share that with other people. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.